You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Open your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 3. We're in a series that we are calling Encounter, Rediscovering the Person and the Work of the Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of the study that we have been in. And uh, Rob opened that up last week. So this is the second, second message. And today I'm going to talk about the Spirit gives us new life. We're going to see the greatest miracle that the Holy Spirit does, and that is giving us new life. And we find it, this is the sort of classic chapter in all the Bible that talks about the Spirit's work of granting us new life. So I'm going to read John 3, verses 1, start with verses 1 through 15. This is God's holy word. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I had told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Well, the Gospel of John is unique. It begins, uh, the first two chapters prior to this, it begins with really some out-of-the-box stories about Jesus. Out-of-the-box, if you had a traditional understanding and were expecting the Jewish Messiah— to come. It starts with the first miracle that he does, or sign as he calls it, because the miracles point to something else, so he calls them a sign. The first sign he does is at a wedding where he just uh, creates an incredible amount of wine out of water. And uh, it, it, it took care of a need. It was at a wedding feast, so he was meeting a practical need, but it was a sign that showed that really that he was the one to come, that he was representing the new wine, that he was the fulfillment, that no longer would people obey the ceremonial law of the Old Testament. Well, after that, in chapter 2, he goes to the temple at Passover, and it's really a corrupt time 
where they are selling things in the temple, which is hindering people, who, especially the Gentiles, who want to come in and pray. And so he overturns the tables uh, at the temple. And then he gives a message, a speech about himself, and teaches that he is the fulfillment of the temple, that he is the new temple. So he is the fulfillment of the ceremonial law. He is the fulfillment of the temple. He is shattering the familiar ways. And he is revealing the true purpose of the Old Testament, which was always intended to lead to the king, Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what he's doing in this interaction with a highly respected Jewish leader named Nicodemus. He is crushing the common assumptions. He's crushing the common assumptions of religious life by revealing that to enter the kingdom of God, entering the kingdom of God is more than becoming righteous. Entering the kingdom of God is more than becoming religious. Entering the kingdom of God is more than just sort of becoming moral. In fact, it's not any of those things. We don't improve ourselves to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is revealing that the very reason he has come is not to make good, bad people good, but rather to make dead people alive. That is what he is doing. He doesn't come announcing to Nicodemus and to everyone else some sort of a new religion, but he is announcing a radically new power, the power of the Holy Spirit to come into a person and create life where there is spiritual death. The power of the Holy Spirit to take something that doesn't exist and give spiritual life to an individual's heart. It's a radical thing that he's teaching Nicodemus, and it stretches Nicodemus. He can't even understand, what is this? And if we really understand what he's saying, it will stretch us too. Because what we'll realize Jesus is saying is that the new birth happens to us not by us. The new birth is something that God does to us, not something that is accomplished by us. And that's a very humbling truth. That turns religion on its head and teaches us that for everyone who is a Christian, that everyone who is a believer in Jesus Christ, to start following Jesus Christ begins with a miracle. The miracle of new life, new life from above that has nothing to do with our godliness and has everything to do with his grace. It's a, it's a, it's a radical message, and it's proven out in his conversation with Nicodemus where he lays out sort of a vision for the new birth and then a new belief as well. So to really emphasize the point that the new birth is something spiritually that happens to us and isn't produced by us, to make that point crystal clear, he has this uh, encounter with a primo religious leader, Nicodemus. Here's what we learned about this guy, Nicodemus, from the beginning. Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus. So the first thing is Nicodemus is a Pharisee. Now, if you've heard Bible teaching from Christians, New Testament teaching through the Gospels, then you probably have a bad impression of the Pharisees because we see them sort of after the fact as legalistic people. But in Jesus's day, they're the most respected believers there are. They're highly esteemed because they are a sect of Jewish uh, people who have the highest standard for obeying the law of God. 
uh, actually too high of a standard. They create additional rules. They have, a, they have a standard that God doesn't have. That's their problem. But they are, they are scrupulous. They are diligent in obeying the Word. And so he keeps God's law more than other people do. He is a religious overachiever, we could say. He's respected by his fellow Jews. Not only that, it says also that he is, verse 1, a ruler of the Jews. This means he's in the top 70. So the Jews are ruled by something called the Sanhedrin, and it's a council of 70 leaders, and he is one of those. So he's not just an average teacher uh, that wants to strike up a conversation with Jesus. We're intentionally getting a picture of someone who has their act together, a religious rock star in the community. Well, not only that, but Jesus makes a very interesting statement about him in verse 10. He says in verse 10, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? So why is he calling him the teacher of Israel? I mean, minimally, he is an excellent theologian, an authoritative theologian, but he might be the top theologian in Judaism at the time because he calls him the teacher. At any rate, he's a prominent theologian of his day. And the point is this, if anybody can know God, if anybody can have peace with God, if anybody can enter the kingdom of God, it's this guy. This guy's reputation is flawless for honoring God and keeping his word. Well, he comes to this meeting with Jesus. It's hidden meeting. It's at night. He doesn't want to be seen, evidently, associating with Jesus. And he starts the conversation by affirming that Jesus is sent from God, affirming that Jesus is a teacher for God, from God. Look what he says. He says, verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God, for no one could do these things you do unless God is with him. No one could do these signs, rather, that you do. No one can do these signs unless God is with him. So he's affirming him. He's saying, look, uh, I know that you are from God because you're doing signs. Now, here's the thing. The the passage at the end of chapter 2 had just taught that many people were gathering because Jesus did signs. uh, But Jesus knew their heart. They weren't really for him. And as you read through the Gospels, throughout the Gospels, people come to Jesus to see signs. They're amazed by what he does. But very few of the crowd follows him. Very few will pay the price to follow Jesus, the cultural sort of uh, shame that was attached ultimately to attaching one's life to him. So it's common that people come and recognize Jesus is doing supernatural stuff. That's what Nicodemus is saying. Hey, no one could do the signs you do unless he came from God. I see you doing supernatural stuff. And Jesus' point is, it's not enough to affirm I do supernatural stuff. You need something supernatural to happen inside of you. That's what he's telling him. You need to be remade. You need to be reborn. You need to move from death to life. Same is true for all of us, isn't it? Same is true for our children this Father's Day, to think about the next generation. And I don't even think I said Happy Father's Day at the beginning. Sorry about that. I did in the first service, but there's fathers here as well. So uh, Happy Father's Day. Um, So as a dad, we want to think about this as well, that for our children, they need this new birth, not just being raised in a religious environment. That's what our church needs, everyone in our church to experience this new birth. It's what our city needs. It's what our world needs is for people to experience the new birth. So Nicodemus says to him, look, we know that you are a teacher. And what does Jesus say? 
He says, verse 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus is saying is, Nicodemus says, we know. Jesus says, actually, you don't know. You think you know, but I'm way more than a teacher. Nicodemus assumes he knows, but Jesus says your need is far greater than you can imagine. Your need is far greater than you can imagine because you can't even see the reign of God. You can't even understand that I am the king. You cannot even receive eternal life unless you have a spiritual birth, unless you are born from above, born again. And what Jesus is doing is he's loving this man. He's knocking out every false prop that he could possibly stand upon. For him, it would have been being an accomplished leader with a high status and a a high moral character and regard for God's law. And for you, it might be something similar. For me, it might be something similar. Faithful participation in a church, a desire to serve other people, being a good dad, being a good mom, being a good friend, being an honest citizen, working hard. We all have various things that, that we could be tempted to rely on, that certainly, certainly I'll be okay with God because of. There's only one answer that, that, that fills that blank appropriately. Certainly I'll be okay with God because I've received new life in Christ. I've trusted Jesus as my Redeemer, my Savior. See, he's telling Nicodemus, you need a rebirth. This is not something you do. It's something that the Holy Spirit does to you by giving you new birth. And he tells him three things about the new birth. There are three truths about the new birth that Jesus goes into. First of all, it is necessary. Number one, it is necessary. He says, verse 3, you cannot see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Verse 5, he says, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God is used in differing ways in the ministry of Jesus. He talks about it in different ways. He doesn't speak of it much in John. He speaks of it a lot, in, a, a ton in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, not as much in John. But when he speaks about it here, it appears like he's talking about the kingdom of God as, as being eternal life, a new kind of life that's experienced in Christ. The reason I say that is because at the end of the passage, he stops talking about the kingdom and stops talk, starts talking about eternal life in the same passage. So verse 14, or verse 15, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16 Uh, whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So it seems like he's talking about this eternal life. And he's telling Nicodemus, in order to know God, in order to experience eternal life, in order to flourish in God's kingdom, in order to experience a future resurrection and eternity with God in a new heaven and a new earth, you need a new birth. You need the birth that comes from God above. You are a spiritually dead person who needs to be made alive. Nicodemus, you can't rely on your works, your heritage, your knowledge, your morality, your religious faithfulness, your status, or anything like that. You need to be made new. And that's a message for all of us. We all want to accomplish things. We all, we all want to be self-made men and self-made women. That's our natural desire to prove ourselves, to earn it. And Jesus says that has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. You disqualify yourself from knowing Jesus Christ if you are attempting to do something to earn his favor. To be, if you're attempting to do something to be accepted by him, 
you've disqualified yourself because the only way we are accepted is by grace and not our works. So it's necessary. Number two, and this is hard to hear, it's impossible. It's impossible, humanly speaking. Being born anew is impossible. And that's why a perplexed Nicodemus asks this question. I mean, this is what he says, doesn't he, in verse 4. How can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Nicodemus is a literalist for sure here. He's, he's thinking literally, can this happen? How can this happen is what he says. Look at Jesus' response, verse 5. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Don't be surprised at what I'm saying is what he says. So Jesus, so Nicodemus says, hey, I, I can't go back into my mom's womb. I'm an old person by now. That's not going to happen. So how do I get another birth? And Jesus says, well, here's what I'm talking about. You have to be born of water and the Spirit. Uh, don't be surprised by what I'm saying. You have to be born by water and the Spirit, he says. So what does that mean, to be born by water and the Spirit? Some have said, well, that means a physical birth, birth by water, and a spiritual birth what he's talking about to Nicodemus. Some people have said that refers to baptism, which involves water, and spiritual birth, two separate things. Here's here's what I think the key to at least finding a source for what he means here is, is what he says to him in verse 10. He says, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you don't understand these things? So Jesus is implying that as the teacher of Israel, you should know what it means this water and spirit that I'm talking about. This shouldn't be a surprise to you. Don't marvel at this. And then he says, this should not be a surprise to you. So why would he say that? I've got to believe because it's in the Old Testament. He's telling Nicodemus, what I'm talking about is already in the Bible. You should know it. So where is it in the Bible? Uh, there's a couple places this kind of thing is referred to, but most, most uh, teachers of Scripture agree that it's Ezekiel 36 that is in mind. Ezekiel 36, uh, the prophet tells exactly what Jesus is talking about here, water and spirit. He says in verse 25, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness. He's prophesying this to a future time. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk by my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. This is the prophet Ezekiel telling the people of Israel, here's what God, the I is God speaking, here's what God says will come under what we call the new covenant, that you will be washed from your sins that this is the water part. He says, I'll sprinkle clean water. You'll be made clean from all your idols. So there's a cleansing. You cannot see the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying, without this cleansing, which is promised. And it also involves, I will put a new heart, a new spirit in you. He actually says, I will put my spirit within you. This is what Ezekiel talked about, Jesus is saying. I am the king who's come bringing the kingdom. And the nature of the kingdom is that I'm not coming to make a new religion. I'm coming to make a radical new people 
by giving you a new heart, by cleansing you from your sin, and by giving you a new heart. I'm going to give you an internal overhaul. This isn't just keeping some more commandments and working a little bit harder to fulfill the law yourself. This is recognizing I need one outside of me. I need him, the the Holy Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit to transform me, to make me new. And this is a picture of God's pardon and his power. His pardon, I'll cleanse you from sin. His power, I will give you new life. And actually, that verse said at the end, I will cause you to walk in my statutes. We'll be talking about that next week. That there's a new birth that the Holy Spirit Spirit gives us. He's the person of God who lives in us, and then he changes us. He makes us more and more like Jesus. That's what Christ says. I'm coming to do that, to give new hearts. It's something he does. It's not a human achievement. Well, Jesus reinforces it with the image of wind. Look at verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from. It's like the wind. He's saying the wind is sovereign in a sense that you don't know. It just blows. You don't know where it comes from, but it just comes, and you, you, it comes where God wants it to come, and it blows where God wants it to blow. And he's saying that's kind of how it is with the Spirit. He's going to go on to talk about you, you know when it's happened because there's evidence, but it's the Spirit that gives new life, and you can't control it. It's like the wind. That's his whole point. Uh, I've read from a number of different sources about the conversion of C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis, who was a, a, a popular British apologist, taught at Oxford and Cambridge both in the, in the 1900s, um, most famous probably in many of our circles for writing the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, but in his, his testimony is interesting. Uh, when it came down to his conversion, what had happened was he was close friends with uh, J.R.R. Tolkien, and he was speaking one night with Tolkien and a guy named Hugo Dyson. I don't know if, I didn't look it up if it's the sort of vacuum cleaner guy, but he was a British smart guy, so maybe. But anyway, Hugo Dyson, and uh, I'll have a text by the end of the sermon on it, I'm sure. But uh, uh, so at any rate, uh, Dyson and Tolkien were talking to Lewis, and they stayed up into the night uh, late, and Dyson stayed with him, I think, all night. Uh, talking about the resurrection in particular. And C.S. Lewis didn't, he was hearing it, but really didn't believe. Uh, He had heard the gospel. He had grown up and heard the gospel. It never really believed. And then what happened was three days later, he went uh, to the zoo and he rode in in the sidecar of his brother's motorcycle and he didn't get scared into conversion. It wasn't that. I guess it was a safe trip. But he was riding to the zoo and this is his testimony. He says, I know very well when, but hardly how the final step was taken. I was driven to Whipsnod one sunny morning. When we set out, I did not believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And when we reached the zoo, I did. Yet I had not exactly spent the journey in thought, nor in great emotion. It was more like when a man, after a long sleep, still lying motionless in bed, becomes aware that he's now awake. That's the, that's the experience. He heard the gospel. He heard what Christ had done. He was given evidences and, and uh, reasons to believe and explain the story from the Bible, but he didn't believe. And then he's riding to the zoo, and he didn't know how and when, but boy, the spirit blew, and he believed. He believed. It is impossible humanly 
to convert oneself, it is the work of the Holy Spirit. So it's necessary, it's impossible, and it is evident. So Jesus says it's evident. You don't know where the wind comes from or where it goes, but you hear its sound. He's saying you can't control the wind, but you know when it's blowing. One of the surprising things about moving to Dallas, we've actually been here in Frisco for 15 years now, my family and I, but one of the things that was surprising when we moved here is how windy this place is. I mean, I, was not, I grew up in Houston, then lived a couple decades in California, and moved back. So I was not ready for the first spring that we lived here and just the, the constant wind in Dallas. And I just looked this up for you because I love you, and I found out that based on daily average wind speed, we're the fifth windiest city in the country, way ahead of Chicago, by the way, which is called the Windy City, but I don't know if they're ninth or something like that. So we beat them. So we really are a windy place. And, you know, you can sort of check the wind when you are inside a couple of ways. You don't have to pull up an app on your phone. You can look and see, are the trees, if you have trees around your house, are the trees moving? Or if you have those little newly planted trees, are they on the ground, you know? Uh, Do I hear it? Oh, do you hear that? What's that? That's the wind. You know when the wind is blowing because there's evidences that you hear it, is what Jesus said, and I just added, you see it. And the same is true with someone who's been born again. There's evidences. There's all kinds of evidences, Jesus said, that the wind blew into this guy's life, the wind blew into this woman's heart, and gave her a new heart. The primary evidence here is that you believe in Jesus and you follow him. He calls Nicodemus to follow him. Look what he says in verse 14. He finishes all this talk about the new birth with a call to believe. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, what is he talking about? Why is he talking about Moses now? Well, obviously, Nicodemus would know this story. This is the story of when Israel was in the wilderness, and the people disobeyed God, and so God sent a plague on the people. He sent poisonous snakes to bite the people. It's in the book of Numbers. And a number of people died. And so what God told Moses to do was, like, get a pole and fashion a bronze snake and put the snake on the pole and hold the pole up and tell the people to look at the pole. If they look at the snake on the pole, they will be healed. It was an act of faith that they were to express and they would be healed. And Jesus says, he basically says, that's a picture of me. He says, as the serpent, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the son of man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Just as Israel, whoever looked at the serpent on the pole was healed, Jesus is saying, anybody who looks at me lifted up will receive eternal life. Now, why would Jesus use an example of a snake to, to, to represent him here? I mean, that's crazy. What, what is he talking about? Well, of course, Jesus is not a snake. Jesus is completely pure. He's not poisonous. He's completely righteous. But the Bible says that when he was nailed to the cross and when he dies and is crucified, he's crucified for us and our sins are put on him. He who knew no sin came to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ, the Bible says. So our sins are put on Jesus on the cross. And so he says, look to that. 
look to the reality that Jesus is the sin bearer. He is the substitute. He is the one who dies in our place. And then he rises as well. So if you look to him, that is, you trust in him, you believe in him, your sins are forgiven, and you will receive eternal life. He goes on to say that in the best-known verse in the Bible, the next verse. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Jesus is saying this to Nicodemus. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that uh, to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Do you see what he's saying here? Nicodemus comes foggy. This is all foggy to him. What is this about a new birth? And now we're talking about a bronze serpent with Moses had in the wilderness. What is all of this? And Jesus says it all comes down to pointing at him, the Son of Man. If you believe in him, you have eternal life, he says. If you do not believe, you are condemned. Uh, if you, eternal life is the life that goes on forever and ever, and it's also a radically new life that we live in the here and now. One day we'll be raised, those with eternal life will be raised to live forever in a new heaven and a new earth with God. But he's talking about that eternal life right now. One of the things that's really important to notice here is that Jesus doesn't offer any middle ground. You are spiritually alive or you're spiritually dead. You've been born or you haven't been born. This is an absolute spiritual binary. There's no spectrum on knowing Jesus or not knowing, being, being alive in Christ or not being. There's not a spectrum. Now, there's a process, like I described from C.S. Lewis, or if you're a Christian, You've had that process. You hear the gospel. Many people, most people don't believe it when they first hear about Jesus. But over time, there's a process. God does something in you and gives you new life, awakens your heart so that your eyes are open and you trust Jesus. So it's a process, but there's not a spectrum. Dead or alive. You say, well, is that putting too much into the metaphor? Being born again is kind of a metaphor, right? Is it, are you putting too much into it? No, because Jesus says, if you believe you have eternal life, if you don't believe, you're already condemned. You either have eternal life, will live forever in God's presence, new heaven and new earth, or you are condemned to pay for your sins, to be judged in eternity. That's what the Bible calls hell. So there's an either or, spiritually alive, spiritually dead. Um, Following Christ or opposed to Christ? Walking in the light or walking in darkness? There are only two ways. He doesn't offer sort of this middle ground. And so if you've never trusted in Jesus, I appeal to you to turn to him and believe right now. Today, Jesus offers himself. He says, whoever believes, whoever believes will receive eternal life. Whoever believes, if you turn from, believing means that you turn from your sin, that you turn from all the wrong you've done, all the things that displease God, ultimately that you turn from a life that's oriented around you at the center and recognize you are not the center, but he is the center of everything. You turn from yourself and you turn from him. You turn from your sins. And you know what else? In the case of Nicodemus, you turn from your religious works as well. You turn from your good works and you say, God, please forgive me for my sins and... 
please forgive me for everything I've tried to do on my own to make myself right with you. That's what Nicodemus has to do. He has to renounce his titles and his works and everything and say, that means nothing to get me in the kingdom of God. What matters is the new birth and faith in Jesus Christ. So you turn from those things, you repent from those things, and you turn to Jesus, and you, you communicate to Jesus. You can do this through prayer. You just simply communicate. I believe. That's what C.S. Lewis said. I believe. I believe in this. I turn and I believe, Jesus, you are my substitute. You died in my place. I encourage you to turn or at least hear these words and, and take them to heart and ask God to make himself real to you and believe. Now, if you have received the new birth, that is, you're a Christian, it's the only kind of Christian, is one who's received the new birth, then you know what? We need to step back and say, this is profoundly humbling, this is profoundly amazing, and this is to foster gratitude in our hearts. You are a walking miracle. You are a spiritual miracle because you never could have believed. You never would have come on your own. But Christ shattered your world with grace, opened your eyes, opened your hearts, gave you new life. This is a reason to step back and say, God, if you could take me from death to life, I I worship you for that. You've done that. I'm so grateful, and I trust you with the rest of my life. You've met my greatest need. You've done for me what was impossible, what I never could have done for myself. Why? Because you love me. God so loved the world. It's, a, it's something for us to set back and thank God. Ephesians 2 says, we were dead in our trespasses and sins, but he made us alive in Christ. God, I'm living. If you sang one lyric of these songs today and you believed it and it meant something to you, if you, when we could, did the Apostles' Creed, if in your heart it registered, this is true, I believe this, that's the work of the Spirit in you. He gave you new life, and so we celebrate. We thank him for that. Uh, First Peter says he has caused you to be born, caused you to be born again by his word. This is what he has done. So we thank him that, that, that he's done this for us. We didn't give ourselves spiritual birth just like you didn't give yourself uh, physical birth. You didn't give yourself spiritual birth. This is what Christ did for us. He worked in our hearts. And, you know, here's the good news. If he did that for me and I couldn't do it for myself, If if I've been born again, not because I'm more righteous, not because I'm more godly, not because I'm smarter, not because I'm better, but because God is gracious. If he did that for me, he will do that for those we love as well. There's some, you, you, every one of us in the room has someone in our life that's hard-hearted to the gospel, hard-hearted. Either they don't care or they're trusting their own righteousness. You have family members, friends, neighbors, coworkers, and, and the beauty of this passage is that the, it's like the, the wind blows. God blows where he wills. May he raise your family members to life. May he raise our neighbors to life, spiritual life that we believe. Dads, hear this message. This is a call to prayer because you can provide so much for your kids. You can work hard and you can put food on the table. You can provide a place to live. You can provide an education. You can provide good moral training. You can do more than that. You can provide the message of the gospel to them at home and at church. And you can model it well. You can model it well. But the one thing you can't do is take a dead heart and bring it to life. 
Only God does that. Now, he does that. He uses the teaching of the gospel. He uses all the stuff that you provide in giving a Christian training to your children. He uses all that, but only he gives new life. So we must pray. We must pray. We must pray for our neighbors. We must pray for our city. I love what Bruce Milne, a theologian, said. The Christian witness will inevitably be a person of prayer. And churches which engage in evangelism with integrity will inevitably be prayerful churches, beseeching God for his intervention to enable dead people to be reborn. This is the work of the Spirit. And so when we talk about encounter, you know, rediscovering the person and work of Jesus Christ, our series this summer, when we talk about encounter, this is the encounter. It is the Holy Spirit granting us new life, granting us new birth. This is the greatest miracle on the planet that enemies have become friends with. Enemies of God have become his friends. Those in darkness walk in the light. Those who are dead are alive. Those who lived a short life will now live for eternity in his presence. The Spirit gives life. It's a call to gratitude. It's a call to thanks. It's a call to prayer that others may know what we know. And if you don't know him, it's a call to respond, asking, Lord, touch my heart, open my eyes. And as he does, saying, I believe in you alone. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.